Hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, so, uh, for those of you who may, were, for those of you who were here last time, you already know kind of who I am and so on. If you were not here last time, um, this is a two-part series that I've been uh, doing. This, this is the second part today on God with us in trauma. God with us in trauma. And um, last time uh, we talked about uh, trauma and suffering from the book of Job. And if you'll, um, I'll recap a little bit of that. And if you'll sort of recall what we, for those of you who are here, what we talked about last time. Um, that was kind of the trauma part. And today is kind of the God with us part. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about how does God meet us in our trauma in and through the incarnation, in and through Jesus as God's not being, you remember I put it last time, it's not just that God is for us, not just that God is for us, it's that in Jesus, God is with us. And um, that's the distinction that I really want to um, draw out and kind of um, unpack. So um, last time, last time uh, what we did was largely textual. We went through Job. I gave you a reading of Job, a certain kind of way of reading Job that kind of in some ways is non-standard way of reading Job. Um, but a way that I think uh, tracks with the major theme of the book, which is really a, a book about compassion, I think. Um, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But before we get started, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll dive in. All right. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for each of these people here and for the very um, uh, various things that are going on in each uh, person's life, the various uh, difficulties, suffering, traumas um, that we live with, the um, attempts to, to make the best we can out of the cards we've been dealt in our lives um, in a way that's faithful before you, in a way that is... Um, uh, uh, open and vulnerable to the ways in which you lead and guide us. I ask that you would bless us this morning, make this time edifying and fruitful for your name's sake. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, all right. So, uh, by the way, I guess I should say I'm Samir, Samir Yadav. I'm a professor at uh, Westmont uh, College. I teach uh, systematic and philosophical theology, um, and I have no place to hang my hat. Um, so, that's me. Um, you should have gotten a handout. Did everybody get a handout? This is kind of kind of track where the direction that we that we take. And so, as I said last time, um, whereas um, here you go. Oh, thank you. You bet. I had an extra, um, and I think I remember it, so I should be fine. Um, um, so uh, when we went through, uh, just to recap, we went through Job last time, and what I said last time, basically, if you want to sum it up is that Job is a story about um, a certain kind of uh, misery <laughs> that Job uh, uh, encountered, which was one that was being on the, on the business end of, um, of the mystery of God's providence. That is to say that God um, allows, for reasons that we don't always understand and can't always understand, um, various forms of trauma and suffering to, to enter into our lives that we have no explanation for. And as much as we seek one, even knowing that there is such an explanation, that is the point of the, court, the uh, divine court scene at the beginning, maybe there is one if you could possibly pull back the veil and see what God, the deliberations that determine God's providence is. But the fact is, for those of us here below, just like Job and his friends, no idea. We have no idea. And the difference between Job and his friends was that he knew that he didn't know. And they thought they did know <laughs> why this was happening. Um, and they were incorrect. And um, um, so Job is a story about the misery of, a, of righteous suffering as one that calls for compassion. Compa human compassion. That's what Job went looking for from his friends that is what they initially intended to give to him. But then what happened was because they thought that they knew and they could stand on the side of God and God's plan for Job's life, um, they ended up betraying Job, betraying the compassionate relation to him by 
um, responding with their own, and what we, what we worked out is that they actually, because of their own terror, their own terror at what Job presented them with, which is a reminder of human vulnerability, that any person among us, righteous or not, can suffer the most horrific losses with no apparent explanation that can seem just as arbitrary as if there were no God, right? And then that person who does believe in, in God and God's governance of the world has to reckon with a God who allowed this to happen for reasons that are not forthcoming, right, to, to us. And then the attempt to deal with that trauma and to be faced with it and to realize I am vulnerable to it ter is terrifying, is terrifying. And it makes me want to render an uncontrollable world controllable, to make it controllable. And how do I make it controllable? By supposing that, no, 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 God really rules this thing by an order that I can understand. And so I will impose my understanding of God's order on, on the suffering person so that I can essentially, by preaching to them about what God is doing, I can satisfy myself from not having to confront my terror, right? And we saw this as a form of spiritual bypassing, I called it, which is where you take your own discomfort with the uncontrollability of life and you actually um, seek to make it controllable, but you avoid those uncomfortable feelings by using spiritual language, spiritual concepts, just to, to shield you from your own discomfort, your own uncomfortable feelings, right? Oh, God is in control. Yeah, we all, we know this, right? As a, it's a form of avoidance, basically, right? Form of avoidance. That's what Job's friends were doing. Um, and ultimately, um, it inflicted a second kind of trauma on Job, a religious trauma, where those in his community given to him for solidarity and compassion become the ones who become his accusers because they wish to stand on the side of God rather than on the side of Job, right? Okay, so we talked about all that, and then we said what Job wanted from his friends was just that compassion. Don't pretend you know what's going on. Just stand with me in my suffering, right? And then that, and, the, and they did, he, Job didn't get it. Then he goes to God, and he wants compassion from God. He doesn't get it from God either, we said last time, right? God doesn't give him his... God, in fact, displays God's sovereign, mysterious control over the world that on the sort of divine human distinction where humans stand over here, God stands over here, there's an infinite chasm between us in terms of God's understanding and governance of the world. We can't cross that gap no matter how hard we tried. And God shows that to Job. But Job already knew God was going to do that. We saw in Job chapter 9. Job already said, look, I know if I were to come before you, you would just appear in a tempest and tell me that, you, that nobody can challenge your justice. And who could challenge your justice, right? Nobody could. And so then I'll just have to shut my mouth and despair for life. That's what he says. In chapter 9. And then God shows up at the end. And what happens? exactly what he said was, was going to happen. And so he ends the same way he said he was going to end. I despise my life and I repent in dust and ashes, which is just what he said he would do, right? So he won't, but he didn't get the compassion from God he wanted. But in chapter 9, verse 33, he also tells us what he would want from God instead of what he expects that God's going to give him, what he would like from God. So for anybody who has your Bible, could you read chapter 9, verse 33 of Job? Whoever gets there first. Chapter 9, verse 33. Anybody? I can read it. Nobody has their Bible? Oh my goodness. It's like I'm back in the Episcopal Church. Just kidding. That was a death. I'm just totally kidding. Totally kidding. Um, you can do it? Hit us. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Ah, yes. And... Uh, I think the way that a better way to translate that and a more literal way of translating it because there's an idiom here in Hebrew it says if only there was an arbitrator who could lay their hand on us both that's what it says Some, an arbitrator who could lay their hand on, our, on us both that's what Job desires if only there was somebody who could span the chasm between our human finitude and limitations from which we can't understand the divine mystery that gives us our suffering. 
and the divine governor of the world, right? If there was only somebody who could span that gap and lay their hands on us both. That's what he says he wants. I think God gives us himself as Jesus for this very reason. So what I want to suggest today is primarily that to understand the profound implications of a traditional doctrine of the incarnation as a way of speaking to the Jobin desire for someone to lay their hand on us both. Right? Jesus just is the divine compassion and solidarity with our humanity that Job desired. Right? That's the claim that I want to think about. And um, rather than sticking closely to sort of the the, a text like we did last time, I want to think more theologically to kind of stand back and think about the theology of the incarnation and how it works. Traditionally, how Christians have thought about the incarnation. Um, because I think that the, um, it's not something, and teaching intro to Christian doctrine every semester, for, largely to Christian people who have grown up in church, and, and, I, and I find every semester that average, our average ordinary Christian understanding of the incarnation is often deficient, that, we don't, that it's not actually taught much uh, in church um, in a way that conforms to the sort of orthodox Christian tradition uh, for thinking about what it means to say Jesus is both God and human. Yeah? No, no. kind of theology lesson um, about the incarnation uh, for just a few minutes. Can we tolerate that? With the, with the understanding that the point of the, theo- of the theology lesson is not to just think abstractly and conceptually about the incarnation, um, but to see how the incarnation, the, the doctrine, speaks to our deepest existential need for divine compassion and solidarity. That's, the, that's why. Okay? And so you, in your handout you have the, the a kind of on number two here, Jesus as, as, as the divine and human arbitrator. Um, so the first thing I want to say about the identity of Jesus Christ. When you think about, um, when we read the Gospels, um, I think that the reason Christian, and this is how I kind of bring it up or think about it in, our, um, in my doctrine class. The first question we ask when we get to a doctrine of Jesus as God and human is to ask, why did anybody ever think this? Why did anybody, why did any Christians ever come to think, hey, this Palestinian Jew walking around is, is God? That's a, a nutty thing to think. It's like, um, and it's not even in the background necessarily such that um, either Greek or Roman or Jewish uh, sort of conceptual or cultural backdrop would have made it a, a supernatural thing to say. So, so it raises the question, why did anybody, why, did, why was there this early sect of people who started saying this weird and crazy thing that this, this guy, you know, walking around a rabbinic ponytail, you know, that's God, right? Super weird. Okay. Okay. So um, here's what I want to suggest about how rationale, well, how did that come about? Um, the relationship we find uh, Jesus bearing to God in the Gospels is, is one that goes directly, relates directly to his identity as a Jew, as an Israelite, as someone who thinks of himself as he identifies with Israel and Israel's mission 
as he understands it. So, for a second, step back, think about Jesus as just a guy walking around. Not, not as any of the big lofty claims, right? He's a guy walking around, and he takes on himself, publicly, visibly, the, the vocation of Israel, the job of Israel. He says, God chose Israel to mediate divine blessing in Israel to the world. That's what Israel was for. Israel was meant to be a source, a site of divine blessing that was supposed to be mediated through Israel to the world. That's what God wanted for Israel. That's not what God got from Israel because Israel's refusal to be a site of divine blessing, to uh, live a form of life that would mediate God's blessing to the world is what Jesus comes to reform as a kind of Israelite reform movement that he starts. So he comes preaching, starts an Israelite reform movement, gathers 12 disciples. He says, this is a regathering of Israel. That's why there's 12 of them, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Regathering of Israel. And he identifies in various ways, identifies himself with Israel. You want to think of Israel? Think of the thing I'm doing around here. All right? So, Israel, because Israel was supposed to be a kind of representative for God's relation to the world. What God wants for the world, God does for Israel. That's an Old Testament paradigm. What God wants for the world, God does for Israel. So that Israel can mediate what God wants to the world. Alright? So, Israel comes to stand in for humanity. Humanity is bound, the fate of humanity is bound up in the life of Israel. Jesus says the life of Israel is bound up in what I'm doing. Uh, inference, what Jesus is doing has universal human significance through his I taking on identity Israel. Does that make sense? Can we stop there that for a second? So are we getting that picture? Or am I just talking gibberish? Okay. Sometimes I do that. So, and not a tongues thing, just like I just think I'm telling you. Um, so, in this, so, Jesus is identifying himself with all humanity through identifying himself with Israel. But guess what? Here's the crazy. Here's the crazy part. Jesus also identifies himself with Israel's God. Um, so he comes speaking to a group of people who other Jews who know the story of Yahweh, of God's relationship to Israel. All right, they know the story. Here's what God does for Israel. Here's how God relates to Israel. Here's the kind of acts God God does for Israel. Redeem them, he forgives them, he heals people, right? He does, God does stuff in Israel. And what Jesus does is while he is enacting the life of Israel in various ways, he's like, I'm the new Moses, so I'm gonna come go up a mountain and come back down with the law, just like Moses did, right? Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, go up the mountain, come back down the mountain, get right. He's like the new Moses. So he's like, I he identifies with Israel, but he also identifies with the lawgiver of Israel. So he is he also stands in the place of Yahweh. He is the word, right, in John. The word is not a reference to, like, reason or something like that. It's a, the word in John, Jesus, I am, uh, the, Jesus is the word. He is the divine judgment. He is the law. He is the law and the lawgiver, the source of the law, right? And so the idea is that he plays both sides. He takes up the role. Think about the drama of God in Israel as a play. And you have actors in the play. Israel's an actor. God is an actor. Jesus in the Gospels is re-performing the play and playing both roles. He's playing Yahweh and he's playing Israel. Right? Not the but um, he plays both roles. And so this is what got him in trouble as being regarded as blasphemy because he's not supposed to play both roles. He's supposed to play one role, the Israel one. At best. And even that, playing that authoritatively is going to make some people upset. Because he's saying, I am the true way of being Israel, right? So, but he also goes beyond that to stand in the divine role. So this is what, what um, early Christians who followed Jesus were trying to make sense of. That Jesus is, is playing both roles and identifying himself with both Yahweh and with Israel. And that is the basis of a Christian claim that Jesus is divine and human. All right. Well, who would he have to be in order to genuinely, truly play both roles? That's the, that's the, the, the kind of question. And what Christians concluded on this basis 
was pretty simple. It was God has not only come to act on our behalf, but that God has come to take up the role that we are supposed to play. God enacts humanity as Jesus. So the claim is then that Jesus is not just an ordinary human person walking around like taking on Israel's vocation. Israel is God taking on Israel's vocation. So it's almost like what Israel was supposed to do and be on behalf of all humanity, right? Everything Israel was supposed to do and be on behalf of all humanity, God says, I'll just do it. I'll do and be that on behalf of all humanity as a human. So, so God taking on flesh, God, be, God enacting, God performing the mind, will, and body of humanity, right? God performing the mind, will, and body of humanity is God um, doing for us uh, the redemptive work that God intends with us, as us, rather than standing as divine governor and saying, and, and, and you know, assisting, helping, leading, guiding, God steps into the role of human life, takes on human life. So the importance of this idea is of God, of God doing this kind of work, it enacts what I say here in, uh, is a different kind of divine relationship to creatures. God has always, since there's been a creation, related to us, in lots of ways. God sustains the world. God, you know, in the Old Testament, beautiful pictures of God giving to animals their food, of sustaining our life, of, of rooting us in land, of all kinds of ways. God does this all the time for us. But God's relation to us in that as divine governor is one thing. But God, but God in Jesus, as this Palestinian Jew walking around, God relates to us in a very different kind of way. In the way that Job wanted from his friends and what Job wanted from God, his arbitrating God, God, God comes to us in a way that we can, that in, in a way that we can relate to directly understand in our own terms. Um, I can relate to, um, I can relate to, um, Walk by, I love watching birds and like little squirrels. I love just watching little animals around when I'm when I'm going to work. Sometimes and people and I've been people look at me weird because I always talk to them. <laughs> I'm like, oh hello, hello friend. I've said stuff like that, hello friend, to so like a blue jay or something like that, and people, you know, and I always think I'm button like nobody's around. Like, you know, um, I just feel it. I just, I just, I love you. I want to, I, you know, I just, I love that you exist. You know. Um, um, but they don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? You know, because I'm a human, and I, I op- operate, live from a form of life that, that is so distinct from the form of life of a blue jay that um, I can do things. I can put a feeder out there. I can care in various ways. I can orchestrate the environment for the blue jay, but I ain't relating to the blue jay as a blue jay, right? Um, that is precisely what God does with us and for us as Jesus. Um, not as transcendent governor of the world, not, the, not as the one who confronts Job and says, where were you when I blah, 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 right? But one who says, um, one who ha- takes on human, the, the limitations of human mind, will, and body. So one who experiences the kind of grief that Job experienced one that experienced the kind of suffering and loss that Job experienced, as God, right? Um, as human. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a profound difference. The point of the incarnation is not a magic trick, or it's not a philosophical puzzle. 
It's for us to understand Jesus as the creator living out the kind of human life that God calls us to live according to God's own plan of redemption. So God, as governor of the world, has a picture of redemption. God, God wants to redeem the world and, and, and make it whole. But then God um, is, wants to not just orchestrate that plan of redemption, but to be with us in, inside of it, right? To be alongside us as the one who makes possible the living out of that form of redemption together so that God can be with us as our brother. God can be with us as our friend in a way that was not possible apart from the incarnation, right? And it just so happens it's a mind-blowing thought. Understanding how it can even make sense for God to do this is what early church theologians were like, okay, how, that's a really beautiful thought. It seems incoherent. God could be human, right? Without de-godding God, without giving up divine, what makes something divine. So here's eventually how they came to think of it, all right? And so um, this is the last little bit I'm going to do in the sort of the technical theology part. And then we're going to go talk about Jesus, all right, in the Gospels. Um. If Christians are going to take God as living out a genuinely human form of life that God has called us to live, that, that's what Jesus, that Jesus is just God living out a human life, then we have to understand what it is for Jesus to be God. And here's what early Christians sort of came to. And I'll put it in terms they would not have put it, but just to help us understand. The first thing they decided was like, look, here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus is like Thor. Or like he's like a, you know what I mean? He's not. He, he can't just be a human person who's like souped up, you know, with divine powers and capacities. So he can't just be a, a, a human mind, body, and will that can also like know everything, like you know, uh, and have all power, but just just stuffed into a flesh suit. That can't be right. That can't be right. Why can't it be right? Well, for two reasons. First, it can't be right because God cannot rid God's self of God's nature, things that it is to be God, to be all-knowing, be all-powerful, be a transcendent governor of the world. Like, you know, you can't, God can't get rid of that stuff and still be God. That's like asking a square to, be, to get rid of equal sides and still be a square, right? Wouldn't be one. So that, it makes no sense from that standpoint. And in fact, we still need God's mind in the ship. You know, if he's, if he's Jesus, we still want a governor of the world, right? <coughs> so can't. So, so that's one problem. Another problem with this picture is that then he wouldn't be able to relate with us. If God was just Thor, you know, just like a souped-up human, the big, you know, whatever, then God actually wouldn't be inhabiting our condition as as ours, right? Because I can't do that. Now, if I depend on divine judgment in such a way that God gives me gifts uh, that the prophets have, like Elijah had, that can do, like, you know, God raised the dead through a prophet, a human, ordinary human person, like you and me. Maybe God can do that still through Jesus as human. But Jesus can't just be, like, a superhero, all right? So they said, not that. So what is it then? Well, it's much more like the uh, um, God um, creating a human mind, will, and body. God creates a human mind, will, and body. That you might say is, is kind of like uninhabited. That is to say, it's not a pre-existing human person. It's just capacities from human mind, will, and body that God takes up, almost like an instrument, to be able to make use. So that insofar as God is making use of that instrument, God is interfacing with the world through it, through a human mind, will, and body. God still has all the properties God has. God is still omniscient, omnipotent, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, but Jesus, here's the, here's the punchline, all right? Jesus is God genuinely 
interfacing and experiencing human vulnerabilities, human pain, suffering, loss, hunger, thirst, ignorance, not knowing a lot of stuff, right? Doesn't know why stuff's gonna happen. Sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't know the day or the hour. Not even the Son of Man, he says, right? I don't know the day or the hour that I'm returning, that God is going to do. He doesn't know that stuff. He doesn't know why he's being forsaken. My God, my God. Why? When he cries the dereliction, he's not pretending. He's not pretending. We all know why I'm at. But hold on, hold on. Why have you forsaken me? Right? No. He's a human being suffering real ignorance and dereliction on the cross. In the garden, if it's possible... Could you please not let me be killed and tortured to death? Let this cup pass from me? Right? He's not pretending. Jesus is in agony, doesn't understand why it's happening, and wishes to avoid it. Right? Because God is enacting a genuinely human mind, will, and body that does not want suffering and death. Right? All right, so um, thirdly then, here's what I want to say about this. The main question this raises for us is if God is going to live out a genuine human life, what kind of life is he going to live out? I mean, God could have, God enacting a human life could live any kind of life. He could have been, he could have done lots of stuff. What kind of human life did God want to enact is the question. And um, what we find in Jesus is the humanity of God acting in compassion. And he says, that when he regathered, you know, I said he was going to regather Israel and make a, a, a as God, enacting a, this human vocation through Israel the way that he wanted it to be. And what he does is he, he, he identifies this work, this vocation, as the calling together of a new community of all the wrong kinds of people. They're all the wrong kinds of people. They're the people who have the least, that are least empowered socially, economically, and politically in this society. The people who tend to be, exist more in the margin society, whether it's the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the whomever, 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 or just the people, average, ordinary people who don't belong to any kind of elite kind of class. And then he, when he gives the law as Moses, the new Moses, and he says, uh, Moses came and gathers Israel and identifies them as a people through the receiving of the law. Jesus comes, re-gives the law, and identifies the people through the Sermon on the Mount as the poor in spirit. The ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does that remind you of? The one who are the people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed, he says to all these, blessed are these people. So Jesus identifies this renewed form of humanity and this new renewed creation he's bringing about. He identifies them with the traumatized among society. As God being with them, right? Um, and he he creates a new kind of kinship. Does anybody remember what happened when Jesus is like starting this Israelite social reform movement? So God as Jesus, this reform movement. And he gathers together people and um, he's preaching to them. And then somebody comes and says, hey, Jesus, your, uh, your mom and your brothers and your sisters are out here telling you to just stop, come back. And you remember, uh, who remembers what Jesus says to them? You guys remember what the, that incident in the Gospels? I, yeah, exactly. Who is my mother and brothers and sisters? Anyone who does the will of God, he says, right? Those are my mothers and my brothers and sisters. And that moment, along with several other key moments in the Gospels, what we find Jesus is recreating bonds of kinship. Jesus redefines kinship in the Gospels to re-identify who is your mother, who is your brother, who is your sister, to form a, a, a kind of community that he describes in terms of what sometimes theologians call the great conversion. You guys know Jesus is all the same stuff like this, right? The way up is the way down. The way the exaltation is the way to humility. The one who wants to lead should be the servant. The one who wants to keep their life should lose it. The one, you know, right? The one who uh, wishes to defeat their enemies should love their enemies, right? 
And the, the, sometimes all of these teachings are gathered together. It's called, something called the great inversion, the opposite way of thinking about what matters and what doesn't matter, who matters and who doesn't matter, right? And when Jesus is doing this, he's doing it alongside this kinship language. Everyone who belongs to the class of people whose lives are a misery in society, for lots of reasons, are brothers and sisters. And this violates all kinds of social norms. All kinds of social norms. Because to call, the way that inheritance law works in, um, in the Israelite framework, and the way that, that um, uh, paterfamilias or, or family household codes work in Roman society, both completely socially undermined. Economically and politically, the family needed to function according to certain um, uh, classes of people in certain families, passing down their power and their e economic standing to those to their children. Right? That's how it worked. Jesus is, is um, doing something politically and socially, economically radical by reordering who's, who's kin, who belongs to whom. Right? And he does it for the sake of the oppressed, the sake of the traumatized, the sake of the poor, the sake of the, those people precisely who belong to the margins of, the, of uh, uh, the community, whom he calls those who God has put at the center. The kingdom of heaven belongs. And so the people who, and the social stations get undermined. And when he talks about children this way, in the ancient world, children were at the, just above slaves in terms of social ladder, right? Um, and he says that the, the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. And he starts talking about people who have vulnerable social status as being identified with God's uh, sort of identification with human community and what God is doing um, in the, to bring about the kingdom. And I say all that to say that that the form of community among, that, that, that bonds us as brothers and sisters that Jesus talks about is uh, one that, that, is, uh, that is governed by compassion. So what we find is when Jesus uh, uh, goes and preaches and with his disciples anywhere, you find him, this in Matthew especially, repeats it over again, and he had compassion on the crowds, and he had compassion on them. He saw them and felt compassion. He says to his disciples, I feel compassion. Let's feed them, right? And, um, um, and he describes the, the form of community that exactly leaves these people out as, um, uh, as a form of failure of compassion that is the cause of his pronouncing these woes on... <laughs> The, particularly in his religious community. Why does he say woe to the sort of, when he says woe to the Pharisees and so on, what, is it, what are the kinds of things he, he calls them out on? Yeah? Okay. Other? Hypocrisy. What kind of hypocrisy? And then not following it. You tie heavy loads and burdens on people and you're not willing to lift a finger. Right? A consistent teaching of Jesus in his confrontation of others is the way is who they leave behind and why. Right? Widows. Widows, orphans, yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, so when we find Jesus teaching on the Sabbath and and he says things like you know, um, he's not going to, he won't break a bruised reed. He won't put out a smoldering wick. You know, Jesus's ministry is described overwhelmingly by a form of human compassion that, that bonds together those that, that are the most vulnerable in society and calls the powerful into that society to give up their power and standing for the sake of their compassion and, um, in sustaining the lives of a community that, that is marked by that is, the measurement of its health is what is the fate of the, the most marginalized in, those, in that community, right? So, so he talks in compassionate and motherly terms in Matthew 23, for example. He's, he looks over Jerusalem and weeps, oh, how I long have longed to gather you as a, chick, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her, right? Under her wings. Um, all right, so God's way 
of being human in the life of Jesus is one that's willing to take and bear the suffering. This is what gets him killed. This form of community is what gets him killed. Like I said, it it undermines social, political, economic expectation in a way that makes him threatening to state power, right? Hey, you're screwing up the way the distribution of uh, Roman governance should work and religious power, right? Hey, you're screwing up the way that, that we think divine governance should be mediated. And so you should think of Jesus's confrontation with religious leaders like Job's confrontation with his friends, right? Same kind of confrontation. And um, realize that, jo- that Jesus is, and Christians have sometimes remarked that Jesus is a profoundly Jobin figure for this reason. He tries to enact a community of compassion of exactly the kind that Job wanted from his friends and didn't get for the sake of those around him that are in Job's position. And for doing that, he actually brings upon himself a whole host of suffering, right? That he's willing to bear for the sake of others to create this kind of community. And that's what gets him killed. Um, And so he becomes, as Isaiah 53 says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who bears our iniquities and transgressions, our failures of compassion he bears, right? Um, and so he hopes that as he's looking forward to his death because he knows that creating this kind of community compassion is not sentimental it's countercultural because it means creating forms of dependence on one another that we don't observe normally because all kinds of social and economic expectations get in the way of the way that we care for one another the way that even we can care for one another my life is determined by my social and economic standing in ways that serve as a barrier for my connection with certain people. Right? Can't get to them. Even if I wanted to, I could just do by my will and by my heart. I couldn't get to them. Right? Um, you know, Florida. Right? There's ways in which our lives and the upsetting of our the structures of our lives are determined by things that are not really about compassionate relations to our fellow human beings, but they're determined by all kinds of other things that, that are place in society and what that limits us from being able to do in our relationship with each other. And Jesus, in creating the kind of community that he attempts to create, uh, wants to break certain bonds in order to remake bonds with each other, to break certain kind of social bonds, to remake them, and to remake them in a way that um, allows those who suffer trauma to find our comfort and compassion in one another as brothers and sisters. Which is why I keep thinking of the epilogue of Job, where after all of this stuff happens to him, God and when God, God gives him um, uh, family, like brothers and sisters, and then it says that they comforted him and consoled him concerning all the evil the Lord did to him. And in a weird way, we talked about last time, that kind of God mediating God's compassion through giving Job people who could comfort him, right? Despite not knowing why God does anything God does, people that could comfort him, it was this mediated way that God showed compassion. And God, God's self becomes the brother or sister that, that comforts us concerning all the evils that happen to us. And he's dead. So, um, I'm really caught up, uh, Samir, on this notion that Jesus is not Boaz. Mm-hmm. I, I keep going back to that. And that um, God does not come to us as a poor, uh, but comes to us as someone who gives understanding and empathy yeah. and inhabits our space. But as I look at how Christianity grows in the world, people are responsive to miracles. People, are, people want more. I would say nine times out of ten, when we are in affliction, we want, yeah. bam, yeah. we want this deliverance. Yeah. And what's interesting about the Jesus of the Gospels is that uh, quite often he does give us that. And he, he, he gives us healing and deliverance from spirits and um, yeah. performs the miracles. So there is this element of the, the, the delivery of goods sure. in, in the ministry of Jesus. And um, 
probably would have given Job understanding, but may, would, might not have actually yeah. healed him. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think what, um, that, you know, it's interesting to think about Jesus' healing ministry and the, the way I, I sometimes talk about it uh, with students is to say, look, um, Jesus doesn't heal everybody, first of all. And second of all, Jesus' healing is not disconnected from his teaching ministry. So how are they related? And I think what's interesting is that uh, when you look at the vocation of Israel that Jesus is trying to, is interpreting and trying to enact, he's trying to like, here's what God wanted from Israel, wanted them to do and be, here's how I see that and here's how I'm going to enact it in my life and ministry. He does that um, in a way, as I say, um, not only creates a different kind of community of compassion, but it's trying to fulfill what it is that God wanted for humanity in the beginning, like a recreation, a, a new creation, right? To renew creation to be what God intends for, intends for creation to be. And so another way of putting it is like this. Jesus' ministry is to recreate Eden, to give a renewed cre creation under the conditions of the fall. So in a fallen world, how can Jesus um, create a form of community that recaptures what was lost in the fall, to renew creation to, as, a, as a foreshadow of what God wants to do for the world at the end of time. Right? That's what he's doing. So if that's what Jesus is doing, then what you find as uh, author showing us that that's what Jesus is doing is that around, in and through and around his ministry, um, creation is being renewed. People are being healed. Right? Um, um, the world is being set right in and around Jesus and what he does and says. And that's how to think about how to frame his healing work. And if we frame his healing work that way, then we can't separate it from the community of compassion that he's created. He's wanting to, 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 you might say, recreate human community in its relationship to one another, to land, to right? And that God is uh, putting God's stamp of approval, ratifying, showing us, vindicating this form of human community Jesus is bringing about. And that's what the healing is about. Um, Job is showing us a distorted form of religious community. And what he desires from it, maybe he, maybe Jesus would have healed him, but his healing would have come not just from like touching his body and healing him, but incorporating him into a form of community that reforms exactly what was wrong with, with Job's relation to his friends. Right? So that they could inhabit a, a holistic space of compassion that Jesus was trying to create that goes that, that goes along with healing. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And Thor would have just fixed it. Thor would have just like, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so I think that um, in the resurrection, when Jesus is willing to suffer vulnerability, when we talk about Job's friends, remember we talked about terror management? Terror management? That we withhold compassion from one another because we're afraid, because we're afraid of our own vulnerabilities? Jesus goes to his death. God, as Jesus, experiences the cross and despair and all the things we talked about, the garden, whatever, because he bears witness to a human compassion, even all the way to the end. We know when he says that kinship stuff, when he says, Mary, behold your son, to John, behold your mother, right? Even on, in death and being crucified, he's trying to sustain these human bonds of kinship, these reformed bonds of kinship, right? And he's willing to die to, for, to sustain that. And when God raises him from the dead, it's God vindicating human vulnerability. God vindicating that kind of compassionate care as uh, being worth pursuing even when it's foolish. What we're afraid of by being vulnerable to, and compassionate to one another, whether it's my compassion to people in a different social station than me, yeah. right? What we're afraid of is what I'm going to lose. And what I'm afraid of is um, how I'm going to open myself to suffering by participating in the lives of people who's, who, who, you know, who's suffering. I'm desperately trying to avoid. Right? And so 
there's self-preservation involved in our failing to live the kind of community that Jesus is bringing about. But Jesus' self-giving is not ultimate. And what I mean by that is that when he says those who are willing to lose their life will find it, he's ultimately trying to reassure us that this form of compassionate form of human life that seems to mean giving up a lot actually means gaining a lot. That's why he says to the rich young ruler, who goes away sad, remember? He says, right after that, he says, listen, he felt sorry for that person, and he said, listen, there's not anybody who gives away, who loses, who doesn't also gain a hundredfold, brothers, sisters, mothers, right? In the kingdom kingdom of God. He's not talking about going to heaven and getting stuff. He's talking about the form of human, bonds of human compassion and and the forms of openness to vulnerability to one another that is willing to take on the kind of suffering that what we receive from that. And that when God raises him from the dead and says, and Jesus' way becomes the way of our everlasting life, it's like a way of God saying, don't worry about what you're going to lose because what you will gain is indestructible. Right? So it's not just like stoic, bearing loss just because it's the right thing to do. Um, it's that our human relationships of human vulnerability are what's good for us. What we, what, it's a form of, it's what we live for. It's what we ultimately desire. All right. So I'm already two minutes over, so I got to stop. Um, but what I, the, what I hope for us is, and I'll just say this as a blessing, may the incarnation, um, may, may God's coming to us as us lead us to live Jesus' form of life to let go of our desires for invulnerability and our avoidances of suffering in order to unite ourselves to those who suffer most, not just for their sake, but for ours. We ask the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.